Would you all pray with me? Uh, Father God, we, uh, we are here to worship you. And uh, you know where our hearts are at in this moment. And you know what our hearts need to hear. And so, Father, I ask that you would be so gracious and kind as to speak those words to us. And Father, I thank you that we do have your word, that it is living and active and that it can speak. And so I ask uh, that you would take uh, my preparation, the things that I share, the things that I've studied, and you would use that however you so choose. But please, Father, by your spirit, come and speak to us, your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of us, if we were asked um, to remember a present we got on Christmas as a child, we would remember getting a bicycle, right? I mean, a bike along with um, a, a puppy or a BB gun, those are kind of the quintessential memorable Christmas gifts from our childhood. And most of us, if we were asked to remember a memory of our dad from our childhood, we would remember him teaching us how to ride a bike. Well, last Sunday, I taught my daughter how to ride a bike. And I didn't teach my almost two-year-old daughter. That would be crazy. Um, I taught my eight-year-old. Young parents, I am not parenting goals. Um, I don't really know how we missed teaching Alice how to ride a bike at an appropriate age. Um, I think maybe part of it was because she was at that right age when I first came on staff here at Summit. And and she was also the baby at the time. And, And then we had a baby. And then we had another baby. And so I don't really know how. We missed it with her, uh, but she did not learn how to ride a bike until last Sunday. And so last Sunday after church, we're over at a friend's house, and all the kids want to go on a bike ride. And Alice goes, um, well, I don't know how to ride a bike. And I mean, me and my wife both looked at each other like, what? And we like, we did not know that. And so um, I, 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 let me just tell you how sweet my Alice is, though. She wasn't mad uh, at me that I had never taught her how to ride a bike. Um, she didn't make me feel bad about it, although I do because what the heck. Um, but when I said, OK, we're going to go outside right now and I'm going to teach you how to ride a bike. Her face just lit up. She was so excited. She could not wait. Um, And I have to tell you, she got it pretty quickly. I mean, one of the perks of waiting until your child is eight to teach them how to ride the bike is there's not really crying, and it happens in 10 minutes. So so it all worked out. um, But there was this funny moment as I'm I'm holding on to the back of the bike, and I'm letting it go, and and she's, you know, riding away from me, and I'm yelling, you did it! And I look across the street, and there's a dad with what looked like a a three- or four-year-old riding a bike bike on the other side, and and I just smiled and waved and and received all the judgment he was sending my way. Um, But today, we're going to take a look at how Jesus lives into the name Everlasting Father. If you've been here with us the last couple weeks, we've been talking about how Isaiah, at at a time in Israel's history, in a time of God's people's history that was really dark, he made them a promise, and he said, one day there will be one who comes who will be called um, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And so today we're going to look at how Jesus lives into the name Everlasting Father. But before we do that, we need to make a distinction between what Isaiah is saying when he says Everlasting Father and God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. 
See, God as the Trinity isn't a fully displayed or understood uh, until the New Testament. When Jesus comes on the scene, he talks about God as Father and he refers to himself as the Son. And then he says, if, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he also says to his disciples, it's better for you that I leave you because I'm going to send you a helper, God the Holy Spirit. And I want to make sure we don't get trapped here because it's an important distinction. Um, in fact, Alice, I'm going to use her again, and uh, my wife's uh, a pastor's kid as well, and her dad, every time uh, he used her in a sermon, he had to pay her a dollar. So I would have to pay Alice a dollar if I had made that deal, but I didn't. But uh, Alice this week was praying, and she thanked God for creating Jesus. Again, I'm not parenting goals. And, uh, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's wrong, right? Jesus wasn't created by God. Jesus is God. We have one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even though this isn't fully explained until Jesus comes on the scene, we see it at the very beginning of the Bible. The very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So in verse 1, we have, In the beginning there was God. Verse 2, there was the Spirit of God hovering. So in the beginning we have God, and we have the Spirit of God creating through the Word of God. God said, let there be light. The scripture doesn't say God made light. It says he spoke it into creation. And the apostle John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that has been made. And then the word put on flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is the word of God. So right there at the very beginning of the story, we have God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God, three in one. But for those of us on this side of Jesus, we hear the word Father, and that's where we go. We immediately think of the Trinity and the first person of the Trinity, but that's not what would happen here. Isaiah's hearers would not have thought that. They would have heard the word Father, and then they would have just started to think about what a father is like, what role a father plays. And so as, as Isaiah is making this promise, he's telling them something about who Jesus will be. And in the story we heard tonight of Jesus healing the man born blind, we see how Jesus fathers his disciples. He helps them face their pain. He leads them by example. He teaches them. And then later we'll see he lets them do it themselves. And so Jesus, uh, let's go back to the story. Jesus and his disciples are walking along. They come across a man who's born blind. Uh, and when we looked at Jesus as wonderful counselor, we saw how he helps us see things as they really are. He helps us see things that are, that are broken and dark. He helps us see our own brokenness and darkness. But here as everlasting father, he helps us face whatever it is we see. So, so they see this man born blind and the disciples immediately say, who sinned that this man was born blind? His parents or him? Who's to blame? Now, my first reaction every time I read this story is, whoa, dudes, I mean, the man's blind. He's not deaf, right? He can hear them. They're having a conversation about him with him sitting right there. But if I'm honest and if I start thinking about it, I realize that I'm not much different. They want to avoid pain. 
And so to humanize this man who's been under tremendous suffering his entire life, they would have to face his pain. And so instead, they try to distance themselves by asking a, a theological question. And we engage in this all the time. We look at, what, at circumstances around other people and we say, well, well, he probably had a troubled childhood or, you know, his, his, her dad was away a lot of the times when she was growing up for work and so that's the way she acts, the way she does. Or, or he was just born that way and there's really nothing that can be done. We try to avoid pain in all kinds of ways. Maybe, maybe we try to avoid it um, by drinking or by shopping too much or Netflix. Um, I don't know if any of, you all, any of y'all have experienced the shame of having the box pop up and says, are you still watching? I, I have, and it's very shameful. But there's lots of ways in which we try to avoid dealing with pain. And so I think about these disciples, and, and they come across this tremendous suffering, and really their insensitivity is really a way to mask their own uh, helplessness that they feel. But a good father helps us face now Christmas, for many of us, can be a very painful time. Maybe we're forced into painful situations. Maybe we're forced to be around family that's really hurt us or family that we feel like we have to be fake with. Or maybe it's really painful because there's someone who's not there anymore, maybe because of divorce or death, or maybe they just chose to go have an adventure and left you behind. I don't know what pain you might have to face this Christmas, but Jesus does, and he will father you through it if you'll let him. I know some of you had a negative response to even hearing that Jesus would be called everlasting father because when you think of dad, it's not a good feeling. Maybe he was absent. Maybe he was really harsh. Uh, maybe, maybe you never even knew your father. But with Jesus, you aren't without fathering. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, we see that, that God was a father to the fatherless time and time again. And so Jesus helps these disciples face their pain by leading by example. Before Jesus responds with words, he simply just looks at this man. And I imagine this looking must have been rather intense because the disciples began to feel uncomfortable. You get a sense that they asked this question to try to ease their uncomfortableness of seeing the pain. See, when, when the disciples looked at this man and when Jesus looked at this man, they saw something so different. The disciples saw a blind man and Jesus saw a man who happens to be blind. The disciples see an item for debate. Jesus sees a person, a human being like himself. They see sin, the effects of man, and Jesus sees need, the potential for God's work. When Jesus looks at this man, he sees a story that isn't over yet. He sees a story in which the best is yet to come. Have you ever been looked at that way? Have you ever had anyone look at you and, and you know that what they're seeing in you, even if you find yourself in circumstances that are just awful and maybe you just feel awful about yourself have you ever been around someone who sees beyond that and sees that there's something better ahead I say this all the time but I, I, I truly believe this I think one of the greatest gifts that we can give to each other the greatest gift we can give our spouse or our children is to pray and ask God to show us what he had in mind when he thought them up and then speak that to them speak that over them speak that and and fight for them 
If, if, I, if I officiate a wedding, you'll hear me tell the couple when they get married, your job from here on out is to ask God what he had in mind when he thought of your spouse and every day remind them of that reality. Each one of us is unique, loved by the one who created us. But we live in a world that is so loud and constantly it comes at us from all different directions telling us that our belovedness is by how we look or what we have or what we can accomplish or what we bring to the table. For a lot of us, work is a place of tremendous fear. We show up at work every day and we think, oh, today's the day they're going to find out that, I, that I'm really not worth this. I'm really not as good as they think I am. Or for a lot of us parents, we live in constant fear that our Kids won't turn out the way we want, that we're going to screw them up. Or, or maybe one day when all the other kids decide to go for a bike ride, we'll be discovered as a failure. I imagine part of what the disciples uh, had behind their question was a real desire to, to not end up like him or not have their kids end up like him. But by Jesus, just looking at this man, he is fathering his disciples by example. You see, Jesus is looking, is inviting them into a whole new way of being. Looking invites interruption. Look long enough so that this man's blindness will affect you. Look long enough so that this man's problems will come to you. Look long enough so that his pain touches you. So that you actually see him not as his disability, but as a person. Jesus is showing the disciples and us how we were created to be. To be people who look and see others. Who invite interruptions. How are you with interruptions? I know this is like a crazy time. It's so busy. Christmas is so busy. And, and, and our work and our responsibilities and our children and all that stuff doesn't stop because we have shopping to do and parties to attend and Jesus to celebrate. Like it keeps going. But right here, right at the, at the beginning of the story, Jesus, as a father, as an everlasting father, shows us how we are meant to be. We're meant to look in such a way that we invite interruption. So once Jesus shows them how they were created to be, he teaches them. He responds to their theological question. And he says this, It was not this man who sinned or his parent but, the works of, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus responds to the disciples' detached theological question with a theological answer, and I love this about him. I love that, that Jesus doesn't choose to shame the disciples for getting it wrong. He doesn't choose to shame them for their insensitivity, which it was, it was extremely insensitive of them. But instead, he responds in a way that invites them into a greater understanding of theology. That's good fathering. Good fathering always moves us closer to God and towards others, where shame moves us away from God and away from others. And so Jesus here disrupts a belief system that the disciples had. See, the disciples believed that, and it was very typical for that time, that sin equals suffering. Therefore, suffering must equal sin. If you do bad things, then bad things will happen to you. So therefore, if bad things are happening to you, you've done bad things. 
Now, in some ways, this is true, right? I mean, if you, if you constantly um, uh, never show up to work, you just, you're lazy all the time, you don't do your job, you will probably lose your job, you'll lose your money, you'll get evicted out of your apartment. Um, that, that might happen, right? And if you sleep around, you, you could get a disease, right? And, and I said could. <laughs> My uh, Christian school upbringing in sex ed, we were told we will get a disease and we will get pregnant and we will die. But, but you could, right? If you lie all the time, you could lose your friends. So sin does have consequences, but, but there's a mistake in the equation. The, the, the equation that the, the disciples were living under was that sin or bad behavior leads to suffering and consequences and that everything had to be interpreted through that. But see, their question assumed that the particular sin was the only cause for particular suffering. It didn't take into account the fact that this world is just broken. And sometimes we're affected by things that have nothing to do with our own personal sin. And so Jesus looks at them and they, they, they have this worldview, this idea, and as a good father, he corrects it. And he says to them, the reason that this man has been blind since birth was not because of his sin, it wasn't because of his parents' sin, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. A father teaches us how to think differently, shows us when our understanding is wrong. Now, your reaction to that might be the sim similar to mine is, is oh, that, that seems like a raw deal, though, right? I mean, that could almost make you angry at God. Like, this man has suffered his whole life. He's been born blind so that God's glory would be shown. Um, and that's very, that's very current. That's a, that's a current way to think about God and suffering. And so you have to put yourself back in the mindset of the first century. See, in the first century, uh, there was this idea that, that suffering um, was because God was angry at you. And so you were constantly trying to work not to offend God. And, and this wasn't just the, the people who believed in the God of the Bible, but ancient cultures. That they were constantly trying to figure out ways to appease the gods. And so if you put yourself in that mindset you begin to understand what this response would have done to this man. See, this man his whole life had been wondering what he had done to deserve this, what his parents had done. I'm sure he spent most of his days feeling hopeless and alone, condemned by those who passed by him. But here, instead of being condemned, Jesus calls his blindness an opportunity for God to work in his life. That the darkness that this man has experienced is a doorway to God's light. And that through suffering, not only would he see God, but others would. In fact, 2,000 years ago, we are still seeing God through this man. Can you imagine that if you're this man? This man who's felt neglected and abandoned by God, and then all of a sudden, Jesus says, no, you are going to be used of God. The world looks at you and says, you're ugly and broken, but I think you are beautiful. See, Jesus' words heal this man's heart first and gives him hope, gives him value and worth that he had never known before. Year after year, he had dealt with his affliction. Others told him God was punishing him. He had no idea that one day the Son of God would come to him and heal him. And now he was hearing God wasn't punishing him, but that this was God's plan. Only God knows why we go through the things we go through. 
So whatever you're going through right now, you need to know that God promises you that he will use it for good. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. And when God says all, I think he means all. I think he means every painful situation, every bit of suffering, the most confusing events in our lives, even our own sin, God will use for good. So Jesus fathers these disciples by giving them a theology that offers hope in all circumstances. He gives them a theology that actually changes their heart to where they can move towards brokenness and, 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 and pain with tremendous hope. He's passing along his understanding, which leads to a hope that his disciples can then pass on. Just like a father. So if we get that, if we see how we're supposed to be through the example Jesus sets, and if we get the teaching, if we get this understanding which leads us to a hope that doesn't make sense, then all that's left is for us to get our hands dirty. All that's left is for us to, to try it, to, to get in there and see what we can do. See, when you and I, when we encounter other people's sufferings, Jesus is inviting us not to distance ourselves with discussions, but to begin to ask, what, what, God, what would you do? And what are you calling me to do about it? See, Jesus invites us to continue his work, to take initiative. A prayer I, I often pray is, is, God, show me what need you have fashioned my heart to meet in this broken world. Do you know what that is for you? It's something worth knowing the answer to. Because as a father, Jesus wants to see you live into that. He wants to see you continue to take on what he began in you. The reason I chose this story um, from all, a lot of other stories that we could have looked at of, of Jesus fathering his disciples is because of something that happens in Acts 3, and I want to read you uh, that. It's Acts 3. We'll read the first 10 verses. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. At 3 in the afternoon... Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who was used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. These same disciples who got it so wrong, who were so offensive and insensitive, found themselves in an identical situation. They found themselves encountering a man who had been disabled from birth and living as a beggar. And what did they do? 
It says Peter looked directly at him. And so did John. And then in the name of Jesus, they healed him. They did what they saw their father do. This incident in the New Testament occurs after Jesus' death and resurrection. But prior to Jesus' death and then again after his resurrection, he told his disciples, he said, when, when I go away, I will send the Holy Spirit who will bring the mind and heart of me into you so that you can begin to act like me. So that you could be transformed into the image of the everlasting Father for the sake of others. And we see it happened. When you and I, when we allow ourselves to be fathered by Jesus, we start to do the things that Jesus did. Now some of us might be feeling like we haven't really done a good job of that. Like we haven't done a good job of becoming like Jesus and and despite his fathering, we feel like we're a disappointment. We feel like he, the way we've lived has, has let him down. We may even feel like he's walked away from us. Spurgeon says, There is no unfathering Christ, and there is no unchilding us. If you've ever entered a relationship with Jesus, he is an everlastingly a father to you. He will never, not even when you're lost, not even when you've chosen to run away, cease to be your father. I recently watched uh, Finding Dory uh, again with my kids. And um, if you haven't seen it, you should see it. It's, it's, a, it's a so good movie. It's a, it's a sequel, obviously, to Finding Nemo. And if you remember, Dory is the, the fish who suffers from short-term memory loss. And the movie starts with Dory as just a little baby fish. And uh, she's so cute, and she's got these big eyes. And, and the movie begins with her father showing her how to get home because she, of course, forgets all the time. And so he, he makes a path of shells. And he says, once you see the shell, just look for the next shell and the next shell, and then eventually you'll get home. And and he does this with her over and over again because she can't remember, but he just keeps doing it over and over and over again. Well, at the, at the end of the film, you know, Dory, the whole movie is about her trying to find her parents. And uh, at, at the end of the movie, she has been separated from Marlon and Nemo, who were on this journey with her. And she's all alone, and, uh, and she notices a shell. And she notices another shell. And, and she kind of follows these shells all the way back uh, to where her parents are. Her parents are there. And as soon as her parents see her, um, and they, they've got shells all in their fins, they've got all these shells in their fins, they run up and they hug her and they say, um, you did it. You found us. And, and, and if you remember in the film, the, the camera angle goes back and, and you end up seeing that there are just paths everywhere of shells leading away from their home. But what strikes me most about this is what the parents say to her. The parents look at her and they say, you did it. You found us. See, what was taught to Dory as a young fish by her father is what actually led her back home. And that time while she was lost, her father never stopped laying paths for her. He was constantly going out and, and making a, a, a path of shells leading to home. But when she actually finally found her way home, he looked at her and said, you did it. Jesus didn't just lay down shells for us to find our way home. He laid down his life. And as our everlasting father, he has set the example that leads us to home every time. 
and it began with Christmas. In, a, in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, it says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the example. That's the example that will lead us home. If we find ourselves acting a lot more like the disciples at times, looking away or, or trying to distract ourselves from, from experiencing the pain. We just look back at the example. And we can have confidence because right before that in Philippians, it says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So one day... We will be like him. One day we will be transformed into the image of Christ and it will be good news for other people. And the day when we get to that day, he will look at us and he will say, you did it. You found me. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that in Jesus we have a father who teaches us how to be who we're supposed to be that we have a Father who invites us to care about the things that, that, that matter in life, that, 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 that invites us to, to be the type of people that will usher in a kingdom of love and joy and peace. So, Father, I don't know where we are. I don't know uh, where each one of us is in, in kind of taking those steps, but you do. You know which ones of us uh, have been running away. You know which ones of us feel like we haven't done it well enough. Uh, and you have been inviting us to look back at you, to trust you again. And so, Father, I just ask uh, that your spirit would continue to speak to our hearts as we leave this place and as we go into this week, as we go into Christmas. That this Advent season would be an opportunity for us to allow you to father us. And we pray all of this in Jesus, our everlasting Father's name. Amen.